Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, Catherine Stewart, is here. I read this book and it's terrifying. It's appropriate that this is the first episode after Halloween because her book is horrifying. Um, these people are scary. They just are. And they're scary because what they want is an authoritarian system where all of us have to hew to their vision of what society should be like, which is basically no different than the Taliban's or the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia. It just has a Christian flavor to it. And it's awful. And they just want, you know, women to be subjugated. And anybody that isn't um, a radical Christian, I would term radical Christian. Catherine uses the term Christian nationalists um, to be shunted away, you know, and silenced and shut down. So it's scary. The amount of inroads that a minority of the population have made into our government, especially in the court system, is terrifying. This is something we have to pay attention to. And I hope it is one of the many factors driving people to the polls. Election day obviously is on Tuesday. Um, You know, Democracy is on the ballot, as they say, no pressure, but I hope everybody's voted early in the states where you can vote early. If not, I hope everybody has plans to vote. This is a really, really, really important election. If we do not hold the House and Senate, we're probably fucked. Um, If we expand, especially the Senate, boy, we can get some stuff done. We can really protect voting rights. We can maybe expand the Supreme Court. We can do some things. So I hope people get out and vote. I'm thinking a lot this week about Paul Pelosi and the attack that happened, the response to that attack by the Republicans and how this is sort of emblematic of where our politics are right now. This is a guy who, I mean, he's 82 years old, right? He's in bed in his house at two o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, sleeping. This weird, creepy guy who... You know, he's a drifterish weirdo, 
married or or involved with this uh, nudist lady who's from Russia, of course, who's this conspiracy theorist weirdo, breaks into the house by smashing through frosted glass in the back of the of the residence. And the plan was to apprehend Paul Pelosi, tie him up and wait for Nancy to come home. This guy didn't know that that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, was not there. Um, probably not the best informed character, but he was willing to wait. And his plan was that when she got there, he was going to insist that she tell the truth, which is the truth according to this this guy. His name is DePape. Um, and if she did not, he was going to shatter her kneecaps with this hammer that he had and used as a weapon. Um, Paul Pelosi managed to um, outsmart DePape and get into a bathroom where he was able to call 911. When the police came, there was some sort of skirmish. And in that skirmish, DePape struck him in the head with a hammer while the police watched. He later confessed to all of this. So there should be no ambiguity about what happened, right? This is a terrifying thing. Just imagine that happening to you. Imagine that happening to your parent or your grandparent. This is political violence. This was an attempt to kidnap and probably assassinate the Speaker of the House. Um, The second attempt after the one on J6 to assassinate the Speaker of the House. This is scary stuff. And of course, the Republicans, not all of them, but most of them, these MAGA people, um, immediately went to the conspiracy theory. Oh, Paul Pelosi is uh, knew this guy. He was a gay prostitute. It was a, a BDSM gay sex thing gone wrong. I mean, disgusting stuff. Complete bullshit. Complete fabrication. Um, amplified by Elon fucking Musk, who is just a horrible human. And uh, I hope the government shuts down this this purchase of Twitter by him for national security reasons. I don't know if it can. They're looking into it. I hope they do. This is a child who has no business messing around with something that important. Anyway, you know, memes are shared by this woman, Claudia Tanny, I think her name is, uh, is running for Congress in New York State in a very red district. You know, there was a meme of of guys with uh, hammers in their hand in front of a a house with uh, a rainbow flag on it. So this is like these people are effectively endorsing political violence and gay bashing, homophobia, all of it, you know. Um, And the, the reason they're doing it is because Nancy Pelosi's husband, who is not a politician, who is not a a member of that thing. Like he's married to a politician, but he's not. He's just his own person. And he's old. He's 82 years old. Guy breaks into his house. I mean, the trauma of that is off the charts. This is something people are really afraid of and almost never happens and it happened to him. And he managed to escape. He was lucky. He didn't get held captive for that long. He managed to outsmart this, the pape guy. But what if he hadn't? What if he was just stuck there? What if Nancy came back there and this all happened? I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, LB said this on the show on the 5-8. We have to imagine what would happen if this stuff was successful. 
when we see video, when we read about this, what if this, what if this came to pass? Do we want to live in a society like that? I don't think we do. Biden gave a speech last night. It's Thursday, November 3rd, as I'm, as I'm talking here. He gave a speech last night in which he denounced all political violence, right, left, center, it doesn't matter. Obviously, the, the MAGA people think he's being divisive by denouncing that and, and, and saying we need to vote for uh, Democrats, small d, and people who believe in democracy. They think he's being divisive. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's wackadoodle what's happened to the discourse. So anyway, my, my, I just, on a personal level, just as a, I, 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 you know, I feel so much for this family, which at the end of the day, the Pelosi's are a family and something really horrible happened to them. And it was mocked by MAGA. Their pain and trauma was mocked. Democrats don't do stuff like that. When stuff happens to somebody like Steve Scalise, you can go read what Nancy Pelosi had to say about it. Shouldn't make fun of it. Shouldn't put memes out about it. So these people are fucking scumbags. They just are, you know. The the I, I don't know what else to say about it. They're just not good people, even though they think they are. And it's interesting that they've aligned themselves, or rather that the religious right has aligned themselves with these horrible humans. And we get into this in the discussion that I have with, with Catherine um, about why evangelicals and these religious people on the right like Trump so much, because it doesn't really make sense that they would, you know, choose to go all in with this godless imbecile who is a basically walking avatar of the seven deadly sins. And yet there they are supporting him, right? Why are they doing this? Well, we're going to talk about that because there are good reasons why they do it. And they're scary. One of the things, I think the main thing that these religious groups want is federal money that is earmarked for education going to their religious schools. This is something Kurt Anderson writes about in Evil Geniuses. It's always been what they want. They want to take their own people and keep them out of public schools. Why? Because public schools teach critical thinking. They teach things in a non-religious way. They don't make everything in a religious framework. And they're not allowed to teach about bigotry and push uh, religious narratives of any kind. And the Christian nationalists are terrified of this because they know deep down that what they believe is just belief, and that's all that it is. And they want to skew the line. They want, when they talk about the separation of church and state that they want to eradicate, they want to eradicate the difference between fact and fiction and what's true and what's belief, right? That's what they really want. And you can see it. These guys, this Christian, what's his name? Not Christian Kirk, Charlie Kirk. Christian Kirk is a wide receiver. Charlie Kirk, that guy with the, the, the moon head and the weird this weird mouth thing when he talks and he doesn't comb his hair product of homeschooling you know and a lot of these religious people come from these backgrounds where they're just effectively indoctrinated and we don't want a society where a significant percentage of our population is indoctrinated from a young age it's cult-like it's weird and it doesn't advance pluralism democracy any of the things that make america great it makes us be more like the Taliban. It makes us more be like the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. We don't want a society like that. We reject it. Americans should reject it. Even religious Americans, even deeply religious Americans should reject living in a society that is a fascist uh, Christian nationalist society. 
You know who wants that? Putin. He's talked about it often. So, you know, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing. I'm very grateful to Catherine Stewart for writing this amazing book about uh, these people. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint them. That's part of the, the issue here. There's a lot of different uh, strands of this movement and there isn't any one leader. Um, there's a bunch of different leaders. They all kind of share in a um, an end point that they want. Um, and that makes it, at least for me, hard to get my brain around. And she really helped me understand it in the book and in this discussion. So um, I'm pleased to bring that to you. Um, that's all I got. As I'm recording this, it's November 3rd. Please go vote. Um, early voting already happened in New York. I voted over the weekend. I always feel good when I vote. I always take a minute and pause and think, this is fucking amazing that this happens. You know, it's amazing that we live in a society where we're allowed to do this, where my vote matters. And it does, especially in New York, this election, man, we've got the governor uh, on the ballot. My vote matters. Your vote matters. Every vote matters. Get to the ballot box. It's, it's never been more important. So that's my message for this week. Uh, we'll be on the 5-8 tonight talking about election stuff and I don't know what else. Please join us 8 o'clock Eastern, 5 o'clock Pacific um, on the 5-8 on our live YouTube show. And that's all I got. We'll be right back with Catherine Stewart. When I think back on all the crap I've seen on Twitter It's a wonder I still tweet at all But it sure beats Instagram, MySpace, and Friendster Throwing cheap up on my Facebook wall Melon Husk, he wants to charge me eight dollars Or else I'll keep hemorrhaging followers Yet he's so desperate for us to stay for him. I got a YouTube handle over to Substack of Amble. If Melancholy dares take my blue check away, Elmo says I gotta pay a week before election day. Elmo will take my blue check away. Elmo says I gotta pay a week before election day or Elmo will take my blue check away. Elmo says I gotta pay, no pony for me. Elmo will take my blue check away. Elmo says I gotta pay cause he's owned by the KSA. Elmo will take my blue check away. Catherine Stewart, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. It's great to be in conversation with you today. I have a lot of questions for you. Um, you've written this book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, which unfortunately is more and more topical. Um, it would be great. Like I I, I talked to uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the fascism expert, and she was like, it sucks when people want to have me on shows. You know, it just means we're in these dangerous times. So uh, I think your book is really, it's it's scary, actually, as I was reading it. But I want to talk to you about that. But before we get to that, 
Um, give us a little bit about your background um, as a journalist and, and, and what got you into this place. Wow. Well, my background in investigative journalism really started with an internship with Wayne Barrett at the Village Voice. He was researching and writing about city scandals. He was writing the first biography of Donald Trump. He was a sort of legendary investigative journalist. He was really amazing. And I was really scared of him. <laughs> and he would give me these crazy assignments. He'd say, you know, go into this room filled with important people, find the guy with the most light on him and ask him the one question he doesn't want to be asked. And I was terrified, <laughs> but I did it anyway, because, um, you know, he sort of like beat the fear out of me in that way. Or he'd say, you know, go to some warehouse up in the Bronx and, I want you to find such and such a document, giving me no directions about where the document might be. And he just sort of gave me these assignments where I kind of had to figure it out for myself. And he taught me some really important lessons. Number one, if you're scared, even if this, you know, if the story's worth telling, you can be scared, but do it anyway. Number one. Okay. Number two, follow the money. Um, you know, he was just very, very good about um, teaching me to be patient and persistent and to kind of develop certain hunches that you then, you know, trust and follow. So that's how I got my start in investigative journalism. He was really a one-man journalism school. So he would take on these, you know, young people who wanted to become investigative journalists and and a lot of them have had really impactful careers. So I'm I'm really honored to have been you know uh trained by him oh he's terrific. and then he, he's uh that, not to interpose he wrote this great book about with, with with another journalist about giuliani called grand illusion with this so his I book know. is still i mean he's writing stuff 25 years ago that you're like oh this should have been written you know should have just been and rerun in 2016 basically <laughs> so i know and then funny. run up to the 2020 election unfortunately uh, Wayne is gone now, but people yeah. would go look through his archives to sort of find the stuff that that he had. But, you know, th I went on after that to, you know, write for a bunch of different places. And I published a couple of novels and I got, you know, fell in love and got married and had t a couple of children. And then in two 2008, I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my husband. Our daughter was a baby. Um, I mean, sorry, five years old. Our son was a baby. And I learned that a good news club was coming to our daughter's public elementary school. And my first thought was, wow, this is great news. I love good news. And I didn't really know what it was. And I heard they were teaching Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. Look, you know, I think it can teach about the Bible, even in public schools, if it's from a truly non-sectarian standpoint, like his literature, history, and yep. things like that. But I started to hear stories from parents in towns who who went to these kids were going to these schools where Good News Clubs had been established. And I started to hear about how kids attending these clubs were targeting their peers for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. Like they'd find the one kid in the class who was Jewish or Sikh or Muslim or um, even Catholic and say, you're going to go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus or you don't go to the right kind of church. And then they would say, I know it must be true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. And, and that, you know, really gets the heart of the problem with a good news club. I don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion with their friends at school, but I do have a problem with kids being deceived into thinking that their public school endorses a particular form of religion and then 
using like adults using their position in the school to get kids to go after other kids and and target them for that kind of bullying. And, you know, what happened in our public school is really amazing. Our school was in this district called um, a catchment area with Westmont College, which is an evangelical college. And the Westmont parents, as far as I could tell, they did not want a good news club in our public school. And that really set off alarm bells. I was like, well, what do they know that I don't? Why don't my evangelical friends want this? You know, I by this point worked out that they weren't non-sectarian. They were, you know, representing the deeply conservative reactionary end of the evangelical spectrum because there is a spectrum. And my evangelical friends were like, "Why we don't want a good news club in our school. So they met with the good news club leaders and they said, you know, we know we mean well. We know you mean well. We're 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 evangelical too. We believe in the Great Commission, but you're not right for our school. They offered them free and better space in the church, literally next door to the school, and the Good News Club leaders declined. Mm. And so, and they insist on being in the public school. So I was like, okay, why do they want to be in the public school? What do my friends know that I don't? What do they really believe? And above all, how is this possible given the separation of church and state? So at, at that point, it was sort of like, like you've walked by your local town hall every day in this sort of nice, peaceful, small town setting. And one day you walk by and you notice someone has fired a cannon ball through the front door. I mean, that's how it felt. I was like, what the hell is going on? So I just started to kind of research the group behind the Good News Clubs, the which is called the Child Evangelism Fellowship. I researched the legal strategy that had allowed these clubs to be placed in public schools in the first place. It was all down to a 2001 Supreme Court decision. Prior to 2001, these types of groups had been able to operate in their parks or public parks and churches and private homes and and the other other places that were all free to practice our faith, if any. Um, And it was really the legal strategy that tipped me off. I I could kind of see that the legal advocacy groups of the religious right, including the Alliance Defending Freedom, Liberty Council, the Pacific Justice Institute. Now there's like, you know, the Thomas More, Beckett. There, there are a number Beckett, of them. Beckett's Leonard they, Leo, yeah. Yeah, Leonard Leo. They, well, and then Leonard Leo, of course, leading the Federalist Society, who has played this outsized role in shaping the courts. They were pursuing this legal strategy where they're putting into place these novel legal building blocks that were going to basically eviscerate the separation of church and state in order to pursue a more theocratic agenda, Christian nationalist agenda in our courts and in our public institutions. So that's kind of a long story for how I got started. But, you know, I had been doing different kinds of work at the time. And I published an article in a local newspaper at Santa Barbara Independent about, you know, uh, good news clubs. And somehow I started getting letters from parents all across the country telling me these horror stories about how their kids were getting bullied and targeted for bigotry in their public schools after the arrival, only after the arrival of a Good News Club. So now we're talking little kids here, K through six or K through five, in their earliest years of learning, who can't make that distinction between what's happening in their school and something sponsored by their school. So, um, Yeah, that's kind of my story. And then I published in 2012 a book called The Good News Club, which is about the religious rights assault on public education. I saw these 
efforts to, pr- to put these good news clubs, thousands of good news clubs in public schools is only one small part of a larger attack on public education. And the attack on public ed, as I discovered, is really just one small tar- part of a larger attack on America as a modern constitutional democracy. Which is what power worshippers really is about in in a lot of ways. Um, you did a lot of research for it. You you went to a lot of uh, a, a lot of these gatherings, these religious gatherings, and talked to and and rubbed shoulders with a lot of these people. So talk a little bit about the process for that. What was that like for you to be in rooms with some of these people? It was fascinating. I feel like you can't really understand this movement without understanding its organizational infrastructure, the legal advocacy groups that have shaped the uh, legislative, the the legal landscape, the groups like Federal Society that has shaped the courts, policy groups like the Family Research Council or American Family Association or Heritage and its activist arm, Heritage Action. You can't understand the movement without understanding its networking organizations like the Council for National Policy, uh, organizations like that that gave give get the leaders of these different factions of the movement on the same page. I saw how the movement was operating uh, to a large degree within religious infrastructure. They draw conservative-leaning pastors into networks like Watchmen on the Wall, which has thousands of affiliated pastors, or Faith Wins, or Church United, or Ministros Hispanos, which is a Latino-focused network. And what they do is they give these the, they do these presentations where they give these pastors messaging tools and um, voter guides, even data tools and things like that in order to turn out the, their congregations. They know if you can get the pastors, you can get the congregations. I mean, I felt like this movement was incredibly organized. And a lot of people have said to me, who are the leaders? Well, I would say it is leadership driven. It is not driven by the rank and file. You know, the agenda is set by the leaders, but it's more than that. It's organization driven. So it doesn't rely on any one particular leader or any small number of leaders. There's some, you look at organizations, for instance, like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a kind of, they have an annual operating budget now of $102 million as of, I think it was 2020, 2021. That's a Uh, lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. So they had Alan Sears leading the organization for years, and then it became Michael Ferris, who was a sort of, you know, homeschooling leader in the in the sort of conservative Christian homeschooling world. And then he took over at the Alliance Defending Freedom. And then recently they shifted to another uh, a woman named Kristen Wagoner, who's been very active and taken a very public role in a lot of the key cases that they run to degrade the separation of church and state. So the Alliance Defending Freedom, you know, doesn't rely on any one leaders. It has a sort of collection of folks and people come in and out. One thing I did discover is that some of these leaders are active through multiple organizations, mm. such as Leonard Leo. Which yeah, yeah. He's like a whack-a-mole. Well, exactly. He led the Federal Society and he sits on the board of, I believe, it's Students for Life of America Action. And he's been uh, now he's been tapped to... Uh, run a $1.6 billion Billion. fund uh, that was uh, established by Barry Side, who is a slightly reclusive billionaire from Chicago, who is Jewish, actually. And in his 90s, yeah. And in his 90s and uh, wants to use his money uh, to uh, engage and, you know, supercharge politics on the right. So... Leonard Leo also has sort of not only sat on the boards of a lot of organizations, he 
there's this terrific Washington Post investigation by Robert O'Hara, which traced like hundreds of millions of dollars that flow through not just the Federalist Society, but a range of affiliated organizations. So he's a real important sort of money man on the right. Yeah. It's interesting that you that you came to this through the public education and, and, and the attempt to subvert the public education, because obviously it seems to me that it's obvious anyway, um, you know, the, the, the religious belief system is countered by critical thinking that should be taught in public schools, you know, not not to people can believe whatever they want, but to present theology and religious beliefs in the same way you present calculus or, uh, you know, earth science is not what should happen in a, in, in a public school system where we rely on, uh, you know, non-sectarianism. So uh, it makes sense that they would want to go in there and attack that and ever, whether it's vouchers, whether it's, um, I, I think it was in Kurt Anderson's book in the evil geniuses book, where he talks about how they want the tax breaks for the, for the schools that like, Initially, that was such a big driver for the religious groups. They wanted their the schools where they were teaching everybody that you know there's only Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve that that to have the same amount of funding as a regular public school. Um, there's also talk in your book about the Johnson Amendment, which is um, that's the uh, the law that says basically that religious figures can't talk politics from the pulpit. You can't go up there and say go vote for Trump. You, you know, but like. We live in a society where we don't prosecute people for like stealing national security secrets and selling them to the Saudis. So I think that, uh, you know, a, a, a pastor who's even slightly versed in how to uh, not get caught doing this is probably going to be fine. I want to go to your book now. I want to because I think that um, I want to talk about the power thing and some of the misconceptions about this movement, which I think you do such a good job in this book of of pointing out. Uh, this is right at the beginning. Most Americans continue to see it as a cultural movement centered on a set of social issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage, preoccupied with symbolic conflicts over monuments and prayers. But the religious right has become more focused and powerful, even as it is arguably less representative. It is not a social or cultural movement. It is a political movement, and its ultimate goal is power. So... Hence the title of your book, The Power Worshippers. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What, what, because that, that to me, I think, I think that it, it really, in a few sentences, you get to the heart of this, of the whole matter here and the thing that most people don't realize. Yeah. You know, Christian nationalism is both an ideology and a political movement, an organized quest for power. And the core belief of that ideology is that everything good in America derives from its specific religion and cultural heritage in sort of conservative Christianity, and that everything bad in America results from a supposed deviation of this uh, foundation. But this belief also comes with this authoritarian conviction that any means are justified in, quote unquote, restoring America as a Christian nation, and no government is legitimate if it isn't uh, Christian nationalist. It's so... I mean, as a political movement, it's highly organized, if in a decentralized way. And again, it's organization driven. And, um, you know, that sort of ideology is, I think, like a useful, like the most useful tool for uh, turning this, these set of ideas and this resentment that this sort of insistence that we adhere to this heritage into political gold. It's a way to mobilize the rank and file to vote for the hyper conservative 
political candidates that the movement favors. I think when a lot of the rank and file vote for things like, you know, an end to abortion or, you know, defense of the traditional family, they're not really arguing for major changes at the end of the day in the way our government is run or when they're, you know, being persuaded to vote Republican because of a supposedly woke Marxist agenda, which doesn't really exist, but they've been told that this is the great threat. They're like, well, I'm not like that. You know, I don't, I don't want to cancel people, et cetera. We should have free speech. So then they vote for the other side, but what, you know, they're not, they're just kind of making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. So their identity, like, you know, might be, I would say only in, they may be lending support to a Christian nationalist agenda, but you might not be able to call them, you know, Christian nationalists themselves. They're more just, you know, voting a certain way. But what they're not understanding is that the leaders of the movement have a much broader agenda. It's an economic agenda, a broader social agenda, a broader foreign policy agenda. A lot of it has to do with favoring the extremely wealthy cadre of folks who are funders of the movement. So it's low taxes or no taxes for the rich, minimal regulation of business, um, no regulation for the environment. And look, you know, we're living in an era of record economic inequality. This movement that claims to stand for family values, but the policies that that their politicians are promoting, their favorite politicians are making it harder for so many American families to succeed. Yeah. Um, the thing that's scary to me uh, is that by by doing all this stuff, like most Americans don't want to live in a society like this. The, the, the numbers are not there. As you say, it's less representative. I, I would guess that it's at, at most a quarter, and I think not even nearly that high of people that really want this ultra right wing thing. And yet the Leonard Leo types, I keep harping on Leonard Leo because he's my way into this, um, but the, they want it. And they're willing, it's more important to them than anything else, including democracy. And the only way that someone like Leonard Leo is going to get the the world that he wants to live in, a world where there's no abortion at all, even if ectopic pregnancy where the mother's going to die and mm-hmm. there's no gay marriage and there's no, no, you know, all of that stuff. The only way he's going to get that is uh, through some sort of authoritarian rule. Yeah, because take over the courts yeah. too. Like if you can get the courts, you can get you can get the the country. You can yeah. through incredibly unpopular um, laws. And the thing about pushing through these unpopular laws, look, they 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 overturned Roe versus Wade. Anybody who was paying attention knew that this is what they were going to do. Yeah. It wasn't a surprise. And anybody who's paying attention knows that they're not going to stop with that. They might moderate for a while or be a little quiet on the abortion issue uh, until the midterms. Because they know that it's you know might promote provoke people to vote uh, against their interests, but they're going to take it up as soon as they can. Um, yeah. if they feel like it's time. And the thing about these incredibly unpopular, like most Americans do not want to live in a theocracy. Even most conservative Christians don't want to live in a theocracy. Right. But um, pushing through these unpopular measures makes our country more divided, less governable, and more chaotic. And frankly. That I think that that's by design because that clears the way for an authoritarian reaction. Yeah. And um, the return of either a leader like Trump, who is uh, has no respect for the rule of law, no respect for our Constitution, no respect for democracy whatsoever, or someone who will do things similar to what what he has done, but maybe with a little less baggage in a more organized 
fashion and not be quite as criminal or chaotic. Not, it's yeah. not as criminal and not as chaotic. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I want to talk about Trump for a second. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Catherine Stewart. Men cannot know the anguish of being ruled ineligible on anatomical grounds beyond one's control. Slaves can perhaps understand eunuchs, too, and perhaps even those doomed nobles like the deposed Emperor Romanos Diogenes, whose eyes have been put out. But not men. This podcast is brought to you by Empress, The Secret History of Anna Kay, the new book by Greg Oliar, now available on Amazon. If the truth is ever to be told, I am the only one left to tell it, and tell it I must. Okay, we're back with Catherine Stewart. Uh, before the break, we're talking we're talking about Trump. Um, the thing that's fascinating to me, and you you talk about this a lot in your book, is here is Trump, probably the most godless president we've ever had. Someone, my my mother, who is a, a religious person and Catholic and goes to church, asked me several years ago, without any irony, completely serious, if I thought that Trump was the Antichrist, uh, and. You know, he exemplifies all, all of the seven deadly sins. He's just a horrible, unimpeachably awful human in every way. And yet all of these people seem to like Trump. So the real question is, and again, you talk about this in the book, but why? Why do they like this guy? What What is it about him? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When you go through the commentary from Christian nationalists on Trump, you find very little wrangling with conscience. You don't find them saying, Oh, it's a tough choice. He's a sinner, but we'll have to make do. You find them comparing him to King Cyrus, a biblical ruler sent by God, not just a convenient leader, God's guy. I mean, many of them actually said this. David Barton said he's God's guy. A lot of them said, you know, it's good to get out of the way because this is what God wants. So this idea that he's kind of a paradoxical choice or a compromise is just wrong. He didn't just give them some goodies that they wanted. I mean, any Republican uh, candidate, any one of those Republican candidates, for instance, would have given them anti-abortion justices for the Supreme Court. I think it's that what made him powerful and compelling is that he was a big recruiter to this movement. A lot of his supporters, frankly, don't have a whole lot of history of church attendance or religious observation. And now they're calling themselves evangelical. He featured preachers as his warm-up acts, and he promotes an authoritarian mind frame that led some people to a particular kind of religion. He represents the lawlessness of the authoritarian, right? He doesn't have any respect for the the rules. He's the law unto himself, and that makes him the perfect leader for a religious nationalist mindset. You know, there are a lot of movement leaders that I came across spent a lot of time referring to kings and kinging. Mm, And, you know, here's the thing about kings. They don't have to follow the rules. They don't have to obey the laws. They are the law unto themselves. Yeah. Um, Cut to King Charles III glaring (laughs) at his servant with the inkwell. Um, (laughs) So the worst thing about your book, by the way, that I read is that Paula White, the cuckoo, uh, what is she, the official faith advisor, Trump's faith advisor, Because you're listening, you remember she's the blonde lady that that makes these crazy pronouncements that she is married to to the keyboard player from Journey. I I, I wish that I did not know that. Uh, Okay, you know what? I went to when I was I went to (laughs) I went to Tulare, California, to the 20th anniversary of Capital Ministries um, that was formed by Ralph Drawlinger, who was 
uh, leading Bible study in the White House, attended by Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, um, Sonny Perdue, Betsy DeVos, and a whole bunch of other very high-level people. He was at that time arguably the most influential political uh, preacher, right? And one of the sort of warm-up acts to the, they did this lovely presentation, a sort of beautiful dinner in this tent at a, an agricultural fair. And one of the former members of Journey sang that beautiful song uh, about San Francisco. Yeah, when the lights go down. Oh my gosh, and I'm like, and it sounded so good. <laughs> you know, I could have written a whole other book, frankly, about the music that I heard as I was researching this book, because I have like my favorite worship songs that you hear in these sort of like quasi-fascist settings. <laughs> and you're like, man, I'm enjoying that music. That's a good title for a Spotify playlist. Worship songs I heard in quasi-fascist settings. Yeah. I actually secretly like to listen to church music, like like Catholic-y weird organ and singing music when I write. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know if it's cool, but it's organ music is really beautiful. I think it's underappreciated. It's actually like incredibly, you know, not just a big sound. It's also kind of there are ways that it can be done with subtlety and yeah no it's it's good stuff but you know you've ruined you've ruined open arms for me forever so thank you Um, i i I guess you didn't i guess he did but uh so okay you mentioned ralph how does he say his name drawlinger Drawlinger. so he's um you say he's the most influential he's certainly the tallest i'd never heard of him before and um which is weird because i in addition to being kind of a little bit paying attention to this stuff, I'm also a, a basketball guy, and he played. He played in the NBA. I guess he wasn't very good. If he, you know, he's just tall, tall guy. So tell us a little bit about him, and then you know what he's doing and the influence he had. Because I went that page in the book popped out at me. We'll talk about that for a second, but give a little intro on who this guy is. Sure. Well, Ralph Drollinger led during the Trump years a weekly Bible study in the White House for cabinet secretaries and other officials, he, uh, his ministry, as I said, was attended by just a whole bunch of very powerful people, General uh, uh, Jeff Sessions, Mike Pence, uh, Betsy DeVos, um, Sonny Perdue, and a whole other, a lot of other folks. And his operation also had groups targeting the Senate, the House of Representatives, state capitals, and he was very involved in expanding an international ministry which I think is really worth paying attention to because during the Trump years, Drollinger was seen as having the ear of the president and his inner circle, which he frankly did. And this becomes really attractive, especially to countries that want to have influence within the United States. So, you know, he had established, I think by 2018, uh, he claimed to have established 24 operations around the world. In 2021, he claimed, uh, announced that he had established six more ministries And he's held training sessions at, say, the Museum of the Bible uh, in Washington, D.C. and other locales that draw in, you know, large numbers, many, many dozens of international associates on the topic of creating and sustaining these ministries, these discipleship ministries to political leaders. So he's targeting political leaders, the kings, right, the influencers. So what does this very influential pastor believe? Well, he believes that social welfare no pro- programs, for instance, have no basis in scripture. He believes that Christians in government have an obligation to only hire other Christians. He believes that women should not be allowed to teach 
grown men. He sort of laid out his thinking in a pair of books, one called Oaks in Office, another one called Rebuilding America, the Biblical Blueprint. And he has published a lot of his sermons on his website. So it's out there for everybody to see. He's not hiding. And he is, by the way, not the only preacher targeting uh, government officials. There's another fellow that I mentioned in Power Worshippers, write about a little bit named Jim Garlow, who has also, by the way, been very active in spreading election lies. And I can talk about that in a minute, but he's a ministry called Well-Versed, targeting, as he calls it, kings and other political leaders. So he was really deeply involved and he's, you know, has pretty, uh, he's a very politically connected uh, fellow. He, um, he, he sort of um, held a, a global prayer, it was like an election integrity call that took place between election day and, and January 6th. So he was very active in sort of spreading that big lie, the stolen election, whipping up people into the frenzy that that they um, that they you know they that they were experiencing. And then, you know, I also also want to say something about Garlow is that he's a, a proponent of the seven spheres of influence. Oh yeah, I want to I want to talk about that. I want to so, talk about that in a minute. Um, so yeah, so there's so much to talk about with these guys. Let's let's stay with the insurrection for a minute and and okay. Drollinger. How does he say his name? Drollinger. Drollinger. I don't know why I can't I can't pronounce it right. Because um, I'm reading this. This is page 41 of your book, and I'm reading this. First of all, all the people that are in this in this little prayer breakfast are all like the most seditious part of the Trump cabinet, in my view. You know, they all have like some little thing that's wrong. So you've got. Alex Azar there. You've got Pompeo. I I, I think Pompeo is just a full on traitor. Uh, you've got DeVos. You've got Acosta. You've got Rick Perry. And I think we still haven't really figured out what Rick Perry's role is with all the Ukraine and the nuclear secrets and all that. I think yeah. we're going to be hearing a lot more about Rick Perry in, in the time to come. Uh, you've got Sessions. And then, OK, so this paragraph, I actually put this on Twitter because I couldn't fucking believe it when I read it. Um at a 2018 event at the Museum of the Bible as part of Ralph Reed's Road to Majority Conference, an annual gathering of activists and policymakers organized by his Faith and Freedom Coalition, Representative Barry Loudermilk of Georgia exalted. Uh, how many of you know that we have a church service every Wednesday night right here in the Capitol building? Conference goers who filled the auditorium nodded their heads and beamed back at him. We have dozens of Bible studies that happen throughout the week, Loudermill continued. We have ministers that do nothing but walk the halls of the office buildings and drop in and pray with members. Now, Loudermilk is, is the guy that led the tours of, of the Capitol the night before the insurrection, which was a Tuesday and not a Wednesday. But if there's these people running around going from offices to offices, it seems like these people kind of know the lay of the land a little bit. I don't know. I just feel like there was an overlap. So you obviously wrote this book before the insurrection. When you heard news about all this stuff, did, did your head start to explode or am I just reading into this too much? Well, when I'm, you mean when I'm, well, as I'm researching the book? No, no. I mean, after, I mean, after the insurrection. You, well, during you January 6th. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It didn't surprise me at all because before the, Look, we can't understand what happened on January 6th without understanding the role of this movement. So not only they spread election lies right from the beginning. I remember right after Biden won, Michelle Bachman, who also, by the way, spoke in Tulare at that event, <laughs> she said, you know, I can't remember her exact words and paraphrasing. It was like, Joe Biden is not our president. This is wrong. 
Um, folks like Michael Ferris were, you know, spreading election lies. I went to this organization, I'm sorry, in an, a, a gathering for dozens of pastors in Virginia as part of Faith Wins, which has held hundreds of these, these events for pastors, for thousands of pastors across the country. They had, you know, David Barton speaking and, you know, they had all their materials that pastors are supposed to give their congregations to get them to vote against abortion, et cetera. But then they had a guy there named Hogan Gidley, who was there to spread election misinformation. He used to be uh, in the Trump administration, and he was billed as an elections integrity specialist. And he was just spreading lies about the election. He said to these pastors, you all saw what happened in Arizona and you know all the bad stuff that happened there. Well, this is weeks after the Republican-led investigation. Remember the cyber ninjas? Yeah. The Republican-led investigation turned up nothing, nada. But he's still there using this story about a lie of a stolen election and this, you know, saying, oh, they found all the shenanigans when no shenanigans had been found. And he's doing it because the the story is too good to discard simply because it's not true. So there was just a tremendous amount of uh, you know, I went to Road to Majority Conference that summer. Uh, it was in Florida that summer. And you had people like Eric Metaxas saying any Republican politician who doesn't stand beside the January 6th, stand behind the January 6th people is dead to me. They're dead. And folks like Ralph Reed kind of nodding and saying, I think Trump tarred our movement a lot in response to these kinds of statements. So the movement had decided, like, there was a moment when they could have sort of, are we going to, you know, are we going to spread lies or not? And they just went all in on the lies. And, I mean, listen, misinformation and propaganda work. It's one of the main tools that this movement uses, because if you can separate a large segment of the population from the facts, it makes them easier to control. Yeah, it's interesting. They're, they go around pro- telling you stuff that's straight up known bullshit. And then they want you to believe in the, their, their, their um, interpretations of the religious texts, which if you, if you extrapolate what they think about the election and what they think about that, the, 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 you know, it's bullshit is the through line, I guess. Is my thing. I, I, I don't know that I would trust them to do anything. And you mentioned the cyber ninjas just to throw this out there for people listening. That whole movement was funded by Patrick Byrne, the, the uh, overstock.com guy who was, um, you know, one of Maria Butina's uh, boyfriends. So, um, lot of, yeah, it, it's all really, really creepy and weird. OK, now you mentioned before the Seven Hills or whatever it is. Uh, this is something you see a lot. It pops up on certainly on social media um, tell us a little bit about that. What, what, who, who came up with it and what it, what it means. Wow. Okay. Seven mounds dominionism is the conviction that Christians of a certain hyper-conservative variety should dominate the seven, what they call the mountains or molders or peaks of culture. Um, and, uh, they, which include things like government, um, finance, education, arts and entertainment, uh, religion, and things like that. So they've got like, they've identified these seven main peaks of modern civilization. The ideology got its start in 1975 when Lauren Cunningham, who was a missionary leader, and Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now known as Crew, they allegedly heard messages from God urging them to invade the seven spheres of society. And this is um, uh, an ideology that 
there's a fellow named C. Peter Wagner. He was a sort of famous church planter. He didn't invent the ideology, but he's a, he was a key proponent of it. The first person to really kind of give it heft, right? To give it loft and 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 publish, you know, sort of give it a bullhorn. And he wrote a book called Dominion, Dominion: How Kingdom Action Can Change the World, in which he said that you know when you take control of these seven spheres, it's taking dominion back from Satan, the idea that anything that is not dominated by conservative Christians of a certain variety is like literally dominated by Satan. So there's this no idea of religious neutrality, no idea of pluralism. It's us or, you know, pure evil. And he said it was, you know, the, the duty of Christians to sort of take over whatever mountain or molder of culture that God has placed, placed them in. So here's the thing about Seven Mountains Dominionism. Two decades ago, it was frankly considered so fringy and kind of extreme that it really wasn't allowed near the podium with Republican political leaders. But that's not the case anymore. It's kind of now just a heartbeat or two away from everything that happens in the Republican Party. So I'll give you an example. Like I've attended the last two Road to Majority conferences in 2021 in Florida. This year it was held in Tennessee in Nashville, outside of Nashville. At 2021's conference, there was a breakout session on the Seven Mountains, which was, wow. I was like, wow, that's unusual. There's never, I've never seen that in what could be seen as a sort of mainstream Christian right strategy and activist event that draws often like leading right-wing Republican politicians. Mm -hmm. This year, there were two. And speaker after speaker was using like the language of, of Seven Mountains or code words of Seven Mountains as though, you know, in, in a way to, to, to signal to that segment, this is a, it's like the language of spiritual warfare has become, which is a kind of aspect of, Seven Mountains Dominionism and the, the neo-charismatic sects like the New Apostolic Reformation that have kind of adopted it, this idea has become a, a signifying, I would say, theological concept um, that crosses denominations. You have people like Mike Flynn, who uh, calls himself a Catholic, and yet he is working with Seven Mountains Dominionists and using the language of Seven Mountains Dominionism. And, and you know, I mean, of course, a lot of different religious sects, Christian and otherwise, use languages of, of blood and sacrifice and, and struggle, that's like not really that unusual. But the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, and like-minded sects kind of take that idea much further and they take it out of the symbolic realm and into a much more literal one. For, for, for many of them, demons are real. And I heard, you know, at these conferences, Democrats and democratic organizations referred to as de demonic organizations, pure evil. You're just hearing that kind of very like literal demonization of people with political viewpoints. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's a mistake to see the Christian right as just one voice in a pluralistic society that wants to have their seat at the table. They just want to get their voices out in the public square. It's nothing like the Christian Democrats in a country like, say, Germany or uh, a European country. Those groups are able to recognize the legitimacy of opposition, political opposition, and sometimes actually work with them and make common cause with them on interests that they both agree with. This is a movement that actually demonizes their political enemies. You know, it's no longer, well, you know, you you all are people, but you just have different political viewpoints. It's like, you know, you're you're satanic, you're demonic, you're godless, you're this, you're that. 
um, you know, I think this is a very dangerous development in our politics, frankly. Yeah, it's this has been coming for a long time. I mean, certainly since Gingrich and then and then McConnell, I think that the, the idea of obstructionism over compromise in Congress, where, you know, the, the other side, the Republicans are just like, you know, we're not voting on it. Fuck it. Like the whole thing about, you know, not not doing the confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland. That's not how the Constitution is supposed to work. I mean, you're not supposed to just not do it. You're supposed to do it. If you don't like the guy, then just vote no. But you can't just hold it up forever. That it goes against the spirit of the game, so to speak, and uh, and it just changes the uh, you know everything. Now, you talked before, kind of at the beginning, and a little bit more now about how this is sort of it's not a one leader kind of movement. It's it's but it's an organizational movement, and I think one of the things that I'm having difficulty wrapping my brain around, I think it's coming, it's it's becoming a little clearer is just that because even on on you know when we try to examine stuff like this to understand it it's logical to go in and say okay who are the who is the leader who's the key player and i think this is really and correct me if i'm wrong um it's more like a patchwork like i'll put something out there about leonard leo because again i know more about leonard leo because i was raised catholic and i he's from new jersey and i i get it i get the whole opus i know what they're trying to do um i understand where it fits in catholicism once it gets beyond Catholicism, I don't understand the, the delineations that much because I, I I personally don't have that much exposure to it. But I'll write something like that and somebody will invariably say, well, it's like the family. It's it's the Jeff Starrett book, you know, that. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. It's, it's two different groups. It's Leonard Leo and that group religiously are not the same thing at all. But clearly they're working together in some way, whether formally or not to push everything in this direction. The Mormons, I think, are involved too, according to people that, that I follow on Twitter who know a lot about how that church is kind of also pushing things to the right. Um, I don't know, again, formally or not, but that's what it feels like to me. It feels like there's a bunch of different, almost like uh, pieces of fabric that are woven together and by weaving them together, they get strong enough to carry everything. Is that accurate or what do you think? Absolutely accurate. I think that you know the, the movement is not united by any particular denomination. It includes evangelicals, it includes Catholics, it includes charismatics and, and uh, neo-charismatics and Pentecostals. That's a very underappreciated uh, sector of the movement. The movement even draws support from people who do not identify as Christian at all. What unites this movement is a common political vision. You know, they know, I've been to events where people say there's no victory without unity. They may have differences of opinion on theology, for sure, but they know that if you can get people to vote on key issues, if you can be uh, very disciplined in your messaging, you can win. In a way, it's easier to draw together, I would say, a smaller group of people around um, a more sort of radical agenda than it is to unite a very large and disparate group of people who are less perhaps yeah. disciplined, less organized, maybe not as authoritarian, so they don't fall in line. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And they know very well that if, if you can get a minority of people engaged in disproportionate numbers, you can win elections, even if you don't represent the will of the majority. And if that fails, you just deny the legitimacy of any elections that you don't happen to win. Yeah, it's dangerous. Um, so what do you what do you think is the like what happens if they win? 
what happens if we if we go into this direction where they seem to want to go and uh you know the the we lose the midterms and and uh you know they overturn Roe they overturn the the you know they make gay marriage illegal like what happened what practically speaking what happens what do you think would happen well i think the ensuing unhappiness and chaos will really make the country ripe for an authoritarian reaction and you know if you look at sort of fascist leaders over time and how they consolidate their power it's often not by winning over the will of the majority it's often by dividing the opposition mm. or creating chaos and conflict in their own countries in order to come in and say okay we're locking everything down you know uh opposition you know they're you know they often arrest people who don't agree with them you know often you know intellectuals and journalists don't really fare very well in these conditions there's still kind of all this hate directed toward an other and um they take control of the education system and the youth uh, to the extent that they can and enact a more authoritarian political order the amazing thing is our country our world and our history is filled with um examples of authoritarian leadership and you know this is what authoritarian leaders do when they want to consolidate their their power they will bind themselves very tightly to reactionary religious figures and say look you can't criticize me i'm surrounded by these holy men mm. as they're like putting their thumb on the rights of their population and they do it in order to bubble wrap themselves in sanctimony and it makes their corruption more difficult to examine and to investigate and hold to account and makes it harder to hold them account to the rule of law they don't really lead to i would say religious democracies they lead to um i would say kleptocratic and nepotistic authoritarian and oppressive governments and i can't imagine why anybody wants to live in one of those but if your aims are to increase the flow of public funding in your direction of course if you've sort of whipped yourself into this sort of idea that you represent righteousness and the other side uh, represents you know pure evil pure evil and the consequences of political loss are too dire to even contemplate you know i suppose that's how you that's how you do it what but, you describe no. sounds a lot like Saudi Arabia, by the way, because the kings of yeah. Saudi Arabia basically, as you said, bubble wrap themselves and associate themselves with the what is it, the Wahhabism uh, strain uh, of Islam by this holy man. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super right wing. And um, and then as soon as they leave the country, they're like in casinos and, you know, doing all the bad stuff, like just like the, these, you know, leaders, the religious right. Uh, in in many senses are not exactly the most leading the most holy upstanding lives um you know as jerry falwell's pool boy can attest i think there's you know there's there's stuff going on which fine nobody cares i don't care what he does with his free time but don't try to foist some bullshit morality on yeah it's the hypocrisy is disgusting um so i want to ask it where does the money come from and is there any way that we could even know because usually when we read about this we're like oh well it's mercer's it's cokes it's there has to be some limit to the money of all these people and because of the the finance laws i think that uh i don't know that leonard leo's groups aren't getting money that he, he might be getting paid fresh from the kremlin for all i know and he's not going to open the books to show me and isn't obligated to do so so I, I think that's also kind of a national security issue but i mean what 
they just seem to have so much goddamn money. Why do they have so much money? There's there three, three sources of money. Number one, look, a subset of very rich people, you know, many rich people don't want this to happen, but political giving on the left is just, you know, we haven't established a federal society on the left. When I say left, I mean, very broadly speaking, you know, liberal, moderate, progressive, you know, non-fascists, non-fascists. Right. There you go. Don't have we haven't established the the policy groups that engage in the political arena in the same way. Um, There are a lot of churches that are really standing up against this, a lot of religious organizations, but they're still engaged in, um, I would say, messaging rather than in candidate focused politics. I mean, if there are a few initiatives that really take make an effort to turn out the vote, but there's there, there isn't the mass distribution of voter guides on on the non-authoritarian side as there is on the right. There just isn't. Um, so three sources of, of money. Number one, a subsection of very wealthy funders. And I've written about a lot of them in Power Worshippers and in other articles that I've uh, covered. And there's just you know, I'm always learning new names. It's fascinating. Number two, small dollar donations. A lot of the, every day I get email from the Family Research Council and Students for Life of America asking for donations. I mean, they're really good at raising lots of money from the rank and file in 10, $20 donations. And the third source of money is public money. I think to a largely underappreciated degree, a lot of the calls for religious liberty that we hear today a really a desire to claim a share of the public treasury. So for instance, in public education, you know, Jerry Falwell said in 1979, I hope to see the day when there will be no more public schools, churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. He wants those church, he and other activists want those church schools to be funded by you and me, by the taxpayer. Yeah. And that is something that was rejected for many, many years by uh, large numbers of Americans for a variety of reasons. And now all of a sudden you have all of this money being put into the quote unquote school choice agenda, part of which is vouchers that will direct public money to religious schools, which are free to teach, you know, bigotry toward other faiths. They're free to teach that, you know, um, being against abortion is what it means to be a good citizen. I've seen that in some student handbooks in these Christian schools that are actually receiving federal money, um, that women have to be subordinate to men. I've seen that in the handbooks of uh, religious schools that um, are receiving federal money. So they want this kind of, you know, and basically, you know, contempt toward other faiths, a sort of Christian nationalist version of American history, far-right economics, that kind of thing in their civics classes. So they really want public funding to go to those schools. And then there are, of course, a whole sector of charter schools that are founded by people with a right-wing economic or reactionary religious agenda that are finding ways in order to, you know, flow those agendas into those charter networks, which are, are wholly publicly funded. So a lot of the movement activity is really trying to get, you know, public funds for for their initiatives. Oh yeah, that this is this is bad. Um, yeah, you're uh, Ralph Drollinger, as you as you write in the book. I mean, he's big on the uh, women women exist to serve the men kind of thing, and apparently so is Lauren Boebert and and Amy uh, Covey Barrett on the Supreme Court, which is probably not great for that. He's also big into uh, you talk about beating children in terms of discipline a lot and they seem to like that too so that's what these people are about these very holy people they they want women to be subjugated and children to be uh 
you know, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. That's that's their their kind of MO. Well, it's very interesting because on the there's actually a lot of women in the movement who have been persuaded that, you know, as Phyllis Schlafly said famously, you know, because women must bear the consequences of, can't remember what she said, maybe the sex act, she said, um, men have to bear the subsequent, I'm paraphrasing her, the subsequent consequences and take care of the women and, and children. And they see like this kind of arrangement, a sort of more patriarchal subordinate arrangement as their best hope of actually being able to sustain their families. And, um, and many of them believe they're actually fighting for their own dignity. So I find that really fascinating. I mean, the movement does have a lot of room for female, for, for women who are anti-abortion, right? That yeah. seems to be like the Rubicon that women must pass through in particular in order to claim any kind of public uh, appearance or public have a, a sort of a public career in that movement. They have to be super anti-abortion and then they can you know, be a politician or a lawyer, things like that. Well, I guess they have a point. I mean, the patriarchy has worked out really well so far. It's not like we haven't had, you know, we've had a century now of no wars and no climate change and everything's everything's just great. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, so, okay. So we're, we're, we're winding down on the time. So I want to ask, uh, the last question, which is what can we do about this? What, what can people listen to this? What can we do? What's the best thing that people can do to avoid the, um, you know, the, the fascist Christian nationalist takeover of our society? Well, you know, it's not enough to just vote, although voting is like, there's nothing like, you know, turning out the vote. It's, I used to think there should be like a kind of plus one campaign where everybody just brings their plus one to the polls and holds somebody else accountable. But, you know, really finding circles of people that you can bring to the polls and voting not just in the national election, but voting in every single election. Yeah. This is a movement that has disproportionate power because they turn out that machinery is all directed at turning out their people to vote in disproportionate numbers. So just very quickly to run down 2016, uh, George Barna, who was this sort of evangelical pollster, identified the most devoted religious rights supporters. He called them sage cons or spiritually active governance engaged conservatives, said they're only 10 percent of the population. But 91 percent turned out to vote in 2016 and 93 percent turned out to vote for Trump in a country where 40 to 50 percent of people don't bother to vote. And a number of people have their votes sort of essentially stolen from them through race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression tactics and the like, you don't need a majority of the country to win elections. You just need people to vote in disproportionate numbers. But here's the good news. Like we have the numbers. We The, the majority of Americans reject these politics. They reject the sort of conquest and division that this movement represents. They would like to see a more just government and society and more tolerant uh, government and society and so if if we can get our folks to vote out, whatever your circle may be, communicate to them, you know, around the issues that matter to them. I mean, we're also the, the right is really good at, at sort of setting the agenda for people who are not the right, you know, the right. Yeah, yeah. Or like we should play defense. Like, yeah, health care rights, you know, the, the workforce. We should talk about jobs. We should be talking about infrastructure, education, the dignity of American families, the sustainability of, of a family making it work in America. You know how 
hard it can be. We we all we all need to be talking about that and which policies actually lead to economic growth and lead to that kind of security for our families. These are issues that I think, oh, oh an absence of corruption. We should be talking about corruption. We should be talking about the rule of law, about you know, holding corrupt leaders to account. These are issues that I think that can unite more Americans than than divide Americans. And I think those issues matter a great deal. I think beyond that, it's also really important to devote your time or money or whatever is possible, you know, to like find something that you can do to sustain some sort of, you know, to, to, to sustain our democracy, invest in institutions that are trying to sustain or restore our democracy. I think when it comes to the courts, we're frankly dealing with like a generational struggle. Yeah. I, I wish that we, you know, there had been a sort of federal society on on uh, among non-authoritarians developed decades ago. So we're sort of playing catch up. But there are folks who are kind of working on a number of these types of initiatives. So, you know, find your people and, and the joy is in the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> La lutte continue. Um, this has been great. Now, you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there. So Kath with a K, S's and uh, Sam and Stewart. Okay, got that Stuart. And your book is called "The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism." Um, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been great. Thanks for hitting us all. It's been great stuff. to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent. I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.